Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. What will affordable housing along Hamilton's future LRT route look like? Despite another request from Ukraine's president, NATO will not enforce a no-fly zone over the war-torn country. Health experts say you should get ready for another wave of COVID infections this spring. The Hamilton Bulldogs are on the verge of making history. We get a preview of this Sunday's Academy Awards. And do you know all about the Oscars? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We continue to raise it with, with Metrolinks as, as an important part of the discussion and one that we know both council and the public are anxious to have um, uh, as quickly as possible. Um, they are looking to convene a bit of a staff level working group to start to identify some different options uh, for how that affordable housing um, component can be delivered. That is the voice of Jason Thorne, Hamilton's general manager of planning, as he responded to a request from council to deliver a detailed affordable housing plan along Hamilton's future LRT routes. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. There is growing concern around the council table at Hamilton City Hall and in the community for that matter over how many affordable housing units will be available along the LRT route once it's officially constructed and done. Carl Andrus is the Community Benefits Manager at the Hamilton Community Benefits Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Carl. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm great. Hamilton seems to be in the dark when it comes to the overall housing plan along the LRT route, which to me is a little concerning. Are you getting the same kind of vibe? Uh, I'm getting a little bit more than a vibe. Um, as part of a community organization that's actively monitoring community benefits in the Hamilton Light Rail, we're hearing nothing other than promises and perhaps tangential commitments in the memorandum of understanding that the city and the province understand that affordable housing is important. But while they acknowledge that affordable housing is important, developers are snapping up land all along that corridor. There's about 12,000 units under construction or in the planning stages along the LRT corridor, probably more than that at, at this point. That is a great deal of new housing that's being built that's going to be unaffordable for the vast majority of people who need access to affordable housing. We heard from some city councillors yesterday who said they were worried that Metrolinx uh, doesn't appear to be concerned about Hamilton's housing needs. When should we expect to see some kind of specific plan when it comes to housing and affordable housing along the LRT route? I mean, as soon as possible, the city really needs to do its due diligence around planning with with its partners in the federal and provincial government to let the community know and start talking to the community about what their affordable housing strategy is, affordable for whom, what are, are we talking about below market rate? Are we talking about 125% of market rate, which is the current city of Hamilton definition of affordable? We need to have a broader conversation than just behind closed doors with a, a couple of staff members. This really needs to be a broader community conversation involving councillors around the council table, but also residents, residents along the corridor who are being displaced, residents across the city who do, who have heard the promise of affordable housing from this project, but are only seeing tenant displacement at this point. The Hamilton Community Benefits Network has heard from many community members about the LRT plan. Is there con- a consensus on how many affordable housing units we should be receiving with this project? 
So there, there's a general sense from folks that any government-owned land that's acquired along the corridor for the light rail project by Metrolinx or city land that the city has to give to Metrolinx for construction should really be looked at with an eye to 100% affordable housing being used on that. And then there's some other uh, suggestions around how we can manage the private development through tools like inclusionary zoning to ask developers to maybe devote 20% of their private units um, where it's profitable for them to do so to building affordable housing for in, in response for extra density along that corridor. Provincial officials, uh, word is that they're going to be forming some kind of working group to investigate these affordable housing options and opportunities. It sounds like this group is almost an afterthought. It's almost as if Metrolinx and other officials within the provincial government are like, oh yeah, we have to build some homes. It does seem that way. And I'm going to give our staff the benefit of the doubt. We are in a pandemic and there's been a lot of stuff on the plate, but the planning really needs to begin now for this quarter before shovels even go on the ground. Because developers have been planning for five or six years since the original announcement of the project's full funding, even before it was cancelled, about what they were going to construct. And we're seeing those cranes and towers all along the line and we're seeing the development creep west and east from downtown across the line. So we're only going to see more and more units constructed, which is great. It's what LRT was supposed to do, provide us with much more density along that spine. But we have to ask, who's it going to be affordable for? Carl Andrus is our guest. He is the Community Benefits Manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about affordable housing along Hamilton's future LRT route. Regarding the LRT plan overall, I know there's a, I think it's up to $3.4 billion budget with uh, inflation and interest rates and everything else costing a little more these days. Is there a legitimate thought that that budget is going to be busted? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. As you said, we've we've heard about cost inflations along the project. Metrolinx has assured the city that because they're doing this project over a number of years, that they have included uh, a surplus fund to account for that kind of inflation and kind of those kind of uh, extra costs along the corridor. As you said, Metrolinx has also bought about 150 million so far and plans to buy more properties along the corridor. So they're sitting, every year they sit on that property, it becomes worth more. So that's another concern that activists has is if there's a project overrun, will that surplus land instead of going to affordable housing be used to offset some of that, some of those challenges? Now the, the province has assured the city they will cover any overages on the project. The city of Hamilton will not cover that. But again, that question of affordable housing and that commitment for affordable housing comes in. Has there been any update on when the first shovel is going to get into the ground? We are told um, Metrolinx would be a better person to ask, but as a community group when, in our conversations with Metrolinx, we've been told that we are looking at spring or summer of 2023 with early works like demolitions going on now and then utility moving starting shortly after that. Wow. Okay. Well, that is uh, that is at least some encouraging news. Maybe a year from now, we'll see a little bit more uh, in terms of those shovels getting in the ground and uh, more action along the routes. Carl, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for waking up with us on Good Morning Hamilton. Thank you for having me. That is Carl Andrus, Community Benefits Manager with the Hamilton Community Benefits Network. About uh, 
two dozen buildings, give or take, have been uh, already demolished along the LRT line between uh, McMaster University and Eastgate Square. Metrolink says negotiations uh, are ongoing to buy or expropriate up to 30 additional properties, and those uh, properties may change hands, i.e. from public or private hands to uh, Metrolinx. We'll certainly keep a tab on the LRT as we have for uh, <laughs> too many years, too many years to count. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today, Canada will be increasing pressure by sanctioning 160 members of the Russian Federation Council who facilitated and enabled this unjustified invasion, which brings the total of individuals connected to Putin who have been sanctioned by Canada to 964. Thanks for waking up with us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin here. NATO allies agreeing to send more resources to Ukraine, but a no-fly zone remains a no-go zone. Let's dig down deep into this issue with Christian Uprecht, a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Rick. Always a pleasure. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Canada is going to increase its defense spending, but he didn't really offer any specifics yesterday. Do you see a way for Canada to climb from its current 139 1.4% to 2%? Well, look, we saw in Germany the reaction by a social democratic green coalition um, that reversed decades of German defense policy on issues as difficult as fighter jets and nuclear sharing and fighter drones, um, and in direction of 100 billion euros and a 50% increase in defense spending. And I'd always said only half facetiously that the only way countries such as Germany and Canada will get to 2% is if the Russians invade. Well, the Russians invaded and Germany got to 2% because Germany realized that in the words of the German foreign minister, we woke up and the world had changed. The problem is that in Canada, we haven't realized yet that the world has changed. And I think it is a very dangerous position that we find ourselves in where the prime minister keeps dithering because the Germans send a very clear signal, first and foremost to Washington, but also to the other allies. It's not just about defense spending. This is a signal that the future of Europe and the future of European security will be decided with Germany at the table and with a strong German voice. And what is missing from Canada is that the future of Europe is vital to Canadian national interests and that Canada has a stake in this future, that it needs to have a seat at that table and it needs to have a voice that is heard. And that's why it's important for the Prime Minister to invest. You wrote a great piece in the Globe and Mail about Canada's declining standing amongst the world's uh, military powers. Is Canada in trouble of becoming a weak link among NATO allies? And, And are we already a weak link? Canada is a discretionary ally and increasingly a discretionary ally. That is to say, the United States have always been unilateralist. The United States don't need Canada to do the things that it needs to do. So if they're happy to have Canada along for the ride, if Canada wants to join, if Canada doesn't join, well, that's Canada's problem. And the Europeans we've seen in the last three weeks becoming more coherent, autonomous, autarkic, a defense and security actor than they had been in the previous three decades. And so as the US goes it alone and the Europeans become more independent and autonomous, 
that leaves Canada out in the cold. So that is to say, Europe also increasingly doesn't need Canada. So Canada needs to show that it is an ally that has value to add. And that, and when the Europeans ask Canada, what more are you going to do on defense now that the Russians have invaded, Canada is taking a pass. When the Europeans ask Canada, what are you going to do on European energy security? Ten days ago, when the prime minister was in Europe, he consistently dodged the question and preferred to talk about jobs, the middle class, and climate change. And when the Europeans said to, to Canada, well, it's nice that you announce sanctions, but why don't you actually put laws in place that allow you to make good on those sanctions and actually build up a law enforcement capacity? to prosecute people, Canada again took a pass. So you can see how both from European capitals and from Washington, Canada isn't looking like a particular reliable ally. Christian Luprecht is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He's a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. NATO leaders say the use of chemical, biological or nuclear weapons by Russia would be a red line and would provoke a direct response. What do you think they mean by a direct response? Well, so, of course, we know that when um, uh, President Obama made the same comments, he didn't follow through on the red line. And the challenge with one of the reasons we see uh, Russia's um, rather aggressive adventurism and challenge to the international order is because for 15 years, we let Putin get away with slaps on the wrist. So why would he expect anything more? Now, the Russians have been surprised at the resolute response that the West has provided in terms of political, economic and military containment. But the challenge is now having imposed all these sanctions or so, how do we escalate? And so the Americans are sending a message they will escalate unilaterally and NATO is sending a message that it will escalate multilaterally should the Russians opt to resort to the use of non-conventional weapons, that is to say what is known as vertical escalation. The reasons the Russians are very likely to do this is because they're running out of conventional munitions and the way the Russians are currently running this war, they don't have enough soldiers to occupy cities and the war is too expensive for Putin to keep continuing on this scale. Plus, of course, it is gnawing at his legitimacy. And so there is and real concern, this is not just hypothetical debate, that the Russians might resort to chemical weapons as they did in Syria, force local populations out of bunkers, call in airstrikes to hit the local populations when they're out of their bunkers in order to demoralize them and to force Ukraine to capitulate. And if that's not enough, the concern about the use of tactical nuclear weapons on one of the Ukrainian cities uh, in the hopes that Ukraine would capitulate and so that Putin can get his victory. So this is a very real, uh, uh, this is is a very real risk. Absolutely. Christian, you are a preeminent voice in this discussion. Really appreciate your time today and enjoy your day. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Have a good morning. You too. Christian Luprak, professor at Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, also a fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Now we're going to focus on COVID-19. Yes, we're still in a pandemic. I know we're not all wearing masks. Many restrictions have um, been relaxed, but there are some experts in the healthcare field that are urging Canadians to be prepared for another wave of COVID-19 infections this spring. Thomas Tenkate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Thomas. Uh, thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. Are you subscribing to this uh, warning or maybe urging of Canadians to be prepared that, hey, another wave is on the way? Uh, like from my perspective, I think, yes, we have to be prepared for that. Uh, 
what we're seeing is uh, you know a range of metrics that are showing increase in uh, transmission and uh, increasing case numbers, increasing uh, percent positivity of of from testing, increase of uh, the detection of it within the wastewater system, uh, and uh, you know so so I think there's a range of metrics that are all showing a you know positive trend upwards, uh, and so given that I think you know we we need to be prepared for for uh, you know uh, an uptick because of the you know corresponding uh, easing of restrictions as well. So so I think you know we we need to be prepared for that. Uh, you know what will that look like? Uh, what what will the impact be? That's that's a different story. Is it the uh, removal of the masks or the easing of restrictions, i.e. capacity limits and the like, or is it just a combination of all these things happening at once that inevitably we're just going to see these case counts and, and perhaps hospitalizations go up? Yeah. Yeah, I think it, you know, it because of because we've implemented a range of measures and then we're sort of uh, removing them sort of uh in, in, you know, in a, in a, you know, we in some ways it's hard to know exactly which measure uh, might be, you know, responsible or not responsible. So, so I think you know, overall, I think you know, this is we're at the stage of of the the pandemic from a from the timeline perspective that well, we're really moving out of the pandemic into the endemic phase, but but what that means is that you know we're at a stage where the the uh, the the level of transmission. And infectivity in the community is pretty high, uh, while while we're sort of trying to get back into sort of normal normal life. And so so because of that, we should should expect to see an increase in in uh, cases. You know, at the moment, the hospitalizations are, are sort of stable or, or still a slight decrease in you know decreasing trend. So what I'm, my my sense is that uh, what we'll see is that we'll see a lot more people getting. You know, getting sick but not not needing to go to hospital and uh, but but I think you know a lot of people are sort of saying oh well if it's it's you know it, it's only going to be mild so it's not going to be something to worry about whereas I think like anecdotally a lot of the people I know who have had it very recently uh, you know they've been uh, you know quite quite ill for a few days and it's taken them uh, quite a few weeks to to fully recover because of uh, you know, ongoing fatigue so so I think people need to be uh, you know, still cautious because of of you know it's it's sort of like getting a really severe head cold for for quite a few days, uh, and that seems to be the trend at the moment. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Do you get the sense? Is there any kind of uh, data? Uh, or or signs that we can point to that this uh, virus will be a seasonal virus, something very similar to what we see in the winter time with the flu. Yeah, like I like I definitely feel that it's it's going to be something that you know we we like you know they've talked about that we have to live with it and I, and it's it's definitely not going away. And so so what we'll see is you know ongoing variants uh, that that become more more and more easily transmissible. Uh, maybe you know at the same level of uh, sort of illness that we're seeing now, or, or or a decreased level of illness. And so so it's really going to be in the same same uh, sort of category as a seasonal flu, where where de- depending on the time of the year uh, and the various you know environmental conditions and, and and other situations mean that we're going to have a up uptick in in cases, but we'll you know have an ongoing uh, level of cases 
cases in the community as well. And it seems that with each new variant, I think we're at BA2, the subvariants of Omicron, it seems like it gets more transmissible, but it is less lethal. Is that just the virus saying, hey, in order for me to survive, I have to be more transmissible, but I don't want to be killing many people off. Is that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right. So, so from the from the you know from a virus's perspective, what it, what it wants to do is is uh, infect as many people as possible, uh, but it doesn't want to kill many people. It wants people to still be be healthy enough so that it, they can keep spreading it to other people. And mm-hmm. so, so you know that that's really you know the the the, the uh, progression of the virus, and and that's what we're really seeing now. And so, so you know that's why I suppose you know they're saying we have to sort of learn to live with it and what's how do we do that in the best best way possible well let's hope the uh, next upcoming wave or bump or whatever we're going to call it is not as severe as past ones and it's looking uh, that it will be a little less severe than those others thomas always appreciate the time thanks for joining us this morning yeah thanks very much rick that's thomas Tenke, professor at the school of occupational and public health at ryerson university you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Don't look now, but the Hamilton Bulldogs are on another roll. And they're looking to make some history as the OHL's regular season winds down. Joining us now to discuss this is Steve Steos, the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Steve, good morning. Welcome back to GMH. Hey, good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Fourth straight win last night in North Bay. The boys are in Sudbury tonight. What excites you the most about this team right now? Uh, hard to put a finger on just one thing. I mean, I've uh, spoken at length about the character of this group and their determination. and uh, um, But I think the, the depth, really, I mean, just to be able to roll the the, the lines and the deep pairings and even the goaltending, you know, um, with the depth we have is really, really um, uh, intriguing. You know, we have our, our centermen are down the middle, just as an example, our uh, Meshach, uh, uh, McTavish, uh, and uh, Morrison. And then and Lawson Shirk's playing on the wing right now with uh, Meshach. So just a great group, honestly, Rick. Really proud of them. A couple of weeks ago, the Bulldogs played in the outdoor showcase at Tim Hortons Field. What were your takeaways from that game? Oh, it was... <laughs> It was a very proud moment, I think, for our organization. Uh, the credit goes to our staff to really put the pedal down in relatively short notice to be able to pull off the event. I know, you know, as it looks with the template of the NHL game before us, that it, would, it looked like it might have been easy, but it wasn't. And uh, Jeff Elia and Stefano and Justin and Caitlin, I'm going to miss people, uh, uh, but our entire front office staff was just really put made sure that it was an amazing experience for our fans and our players and their families and uh it was, you know, at one point, Rick, I was looking out. I couldn't believe that that, uh, that was our team out on the ice at that event because I've been part of these events at the NHL level. Um, it was really a proud moment. Yeah, absolutely surreal, but well-deserved and well-executed as well. The, the dogs played great that night. It was an awesome crowd. The weather participated as well, top-notch, uh, full check marks uh, across the board. Um, Scott Radley wrote in the Hamilton Spectator earlier this week, and I had not known this, and he intimated in the article that he did not know, uh, of course, you can hear Scott weekday, weeknights here on 900 CHML, 6 to 8 uh, p.m., that Hamilton has never finished first in the Ontario Hockey League. And that that's something to be said because we've had a couple of Memorial Cup champions in this city. How cool would it be for this year's Bulldogs team to be that team? 
Well, for, first off, if if you and Scott don't know, then probably no one knows because I, I sure <laughs> uh, as heck didn't know as well when Scott called me on it. Um, it's 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 amazing. It really is. I mean, I won't shy away from that. I think the one thing that you know, I said to Scott and I'll say to you and our, our, the listeners is there's obviously bigger plans for this, this group. Um, getting the playoff times, you need a little bit of everything and a little bit of luck as well to, to do what we're looking to accomplish. But, um, you know, the one thing I said when I came back to Hamilton from my role with the Toronto Maple Leafs is I wanted to make junior hockey relevant again uh, in Hamilton. And I know, you know, there's been a lot of movement in, junior hockey through our, uh, our our city and want to make it relevant and sustainable. And uh, so it gave me time to reflect a little bit, Rick, on that when, when Scott brought it up. So it's definitely a proud moment. Uh, don't want it to distract from the ultimate goal uh, of what this team has uh, determined to accomplish. But uh, it, it's, it is really, it really neat. I mean, uh, the credit to the players and the coaches and the entire staff on all the work that goes on behind the scenes to be able to build up an organization the way we have. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible, really. We're really, really proud of it. Another exciting element to the Bulldogs is the uh, auction of the Heritage jerseys that were worn for the outdoor showcase game at Tim Hortons Field on March 14th. You can check out the auction at hamiltonbulldogs.com and you can bid on those jerseys up until 11.59 a.m. on April the 1st. We'll make for a great gift and obviously all the money goes to the Bulldogs Foundation which feeds kids in our schools. Uh, Steve, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time today. Good luck uh, for the rest of this weekend and beyond in this season. Thank you, Rick. Have a great day. You too. Steve Steyos, President and General Manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast from 900 CHML. Big night, as we know, this coming Sunday night. It's the Academy Awards. Yeah, the Oscars. 94th edition of the Academy Awards. Who could be some of the big winners or some of the big losers? I guess we'll find out this coming Sunday. But another question is, aside from, you know, who's going to get a statuette, is will anybody be watching? Last time around, it was a record-breaking low TV viewership for the Oscars. An absolute uh, destruction in terms of the number of viewers who tuned in in comparison to previous years. It was not even close. Bob Thompson is the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton to break down this Sunday's Oscars. Robert, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm okay. Last year's show was the least watched ever, and it was by a long shot. The question is, will eyeballs return to this Sunday show? Yeah, okay. So first of all, you're right. Uh, generally, these Oscars tended to be uh, in the 30s and 40s million. Uh, uh, 1998, the year Titanic won, it was as high as uh, 57 million. Um, and then it uh, went below 30 the first time in 2018, and it was only about 10 million last year. So that is, as you point out, a precipitous drop. But I think we should be careful by saying, will anybody be watching or nobody was watching last year, hmm. in that 10 million is still a really high number for uh, uh, television these days. I mean, uh, uh, it wouldn't have been in the old days, but uh, uh, now 10 million uh, you know, will win your time slot. It'll be one of the highest uh, 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 rated programs when you take away sports and all of that. So... I think the Oscars, as everything else except football, is going to have to learn to live with 
lowered expectations. Uh, in 1998, when 57 million watched the Oscars, they didn't have the option to watch uh, Netflix and Hulu and Peacock and uh, uh, all the rest of it. So uh, I think we're never going to see those numbers uh, come up again. That being said, they're trying. I mean, there's uh, all this uh, uh, talk about how they're going to try to make this broadcast seamless and flowing and all the rest. We'll see how that works. Uh, you know, with Oscar Awards, you've got to name the nominees. These, the people have got to come up. They've got to give a speech. There's only so much you can change. You pointed to one of the many reasons why the, the viewership has been lower than in previous years, and that being, you know, other things to watch on TV. Is there one main thing that has uh, led to, and this is not only the Oscars, this is, you know, the the Grammys, um, the, uh, the, the, the Tonys, the Emmys, you name the award show, viewership has been on the decline. Is there one main reason for that? I think the the main and uh, significant and primary reason is we've got more choices. You're right, all the awards uh, shows ratings have been down across the board, but if you look at the ratings of sitcoms and doctor shows and uh, daytime and everything else, uh, uh, ratings have gone way down. Uh, you know, once upon a time, you had a few choices. The pie was only split, uh, uh, you know, three or four or five ways. Um, now people have so many other uh, opportunities. I'm not sure when 45 million people were watching the Oscars that 45 million people were totally into watching the Oscars. If they would have had other choices, they probably would have done. So, uh, uh, so I think that really is uh, accounts for just about everything in these uh, falls. I suppose there are a few other things. Uh, uh, these shows are getting, um, they, they do seem incredibly old-fashioned because you've got to kind of cover uh, uh, what you cover. They may start be starting to wear out. There may be an idea, too, that we used to go to award shows because we could see celebrities and we could, uh, uh, you know, uh, see all this stuff that we didn't, uh, we normally could only see them in their movies. That, of course, is different, too. They've all got their own social media accounts. Uh, uh, most of what we see in the Oscars is stuff that we can see daily now. Robert Thompson is our guest. Robert is the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. There are three co-hosts this year for the Oscars, Regina Hall, uh, Amy Schumer, and Wanda Sykes. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they bring to the stage. It will be. It'll even be interesting to see how they direct the traffic uh, uh, on the stage. Uh, um, I, I guess I had heard at first that they were going to have each one of them kind of have their own hour, though also uh, 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 Wanda Sykes was talking about how the three of them together are going to do the opening um, monologue. So it, it's uh, not even sure how they're going to uh, work that all. But clearly, with three hosts, you can uh, the, the the major host is to draw people to, uh, to watch the show who may like those hosts uh, three times more likely to do that I suppose with three different people. Uh, we got about thirty seconds. Who do you think is going to be the big winner on Sunday? Boy, I, I don't know. It's uh, it, 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 this isn't of course science. It's show business, and it's who <laughs> in show business happens to be uh, voting at any given time. I will say this: if you look down the list of all the major. Uh, categories. Uh, there are a lot of really, really fine films out there, uh, any of which deserve recognition. Absolutely. Robert, appreciate the time today. Enjoy the weekend and the Oscars on Sunday. Thanks, and you too. That is Robert Thompson, founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When did the Academy Awards first take place and which actors and actresses stand alone amongst all the award winners? The Oscar goes to... Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire. I know I have a little bit of time, so I'm going to rush and say everybody, and you cut away. I won't be mad at you. Tom said, don't forget to thank your wife. I will never forget to thank my high school sweetheart and the mother of my children, Spencer and Mason. I love you, Sarah. And my, my parents who are here, Shirley and Cuba, Cuba the first. And uh, I just want to, uh, here we go, okay. Uh, the studio, I love you, and Cameron Crowe, and uh, Tom Cruise. I love you, brother. I love you, man. The Academy Awards first presented at a private dinner hosted by Douglas Fairbanks at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel in 1929 making it the oldest worldwide entertainment awards ceremony. About 270 people attended that event, honoring the best movies from 1927 and 28, and tickets were five bucks. The first Academy Award winner was Emil Jennings for his performances in The Last Command and The Way of All Flesh. And because he had to return to Europe before the Oscar ceremony, the Academy agreed to give Jennings his prize before the ceremony. A year later, the Oscars were broadcast on radio for the first time, and the ceremony finally hit our television screens in 1953. The origin of the Oscar nickname has been long debated, but most believe the name came from Academy Executive Secretary Margaret Herrick, who, after seeing the award for the first time back in 1931, said it reminded her of her uncle Oscar. Three films hold the record for most Oscar wins at 11. Ben-Hur in 1959, Titanic in 97, and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King in 2003. Walt Disney has won the most Oscars by one person, 22, while Edith Head leads all women with eight Academy Awards, all for costume design. Catherine Hepburn has won four Best Actress Oscars, most of any woman, and Daniel Day-Lewis is tops among men with three Best Actress awards. And here is a bonus fact. Since its inception in 1929, 3,140 Oscar statuettes have been awarded. If you want to know something, send me an email, rick at 900chml.com. We'll showcase it on the next edition of Do You Know. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.